Good morning, church. So great to see so many of you here today. Really uh, grateful that each one of you are here, especially want to welcome you if you're visiting today. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third. And today uh, we're starting a new sermon series called The Questions of Jesus. And as the title suggests, this is a series about questions. Let me tell you a story about a question that was asked to me. About 10 years ago, I was living in the east end of Richmond in Church Hill with my family, and we were a part of an urban community development effort there uh, and part of planting a new church called Easton Fellowship, which is where I was prior to coming here to third as senior pastor. And looking back on it now, I realize that in the midst of that work, I began to have, probably because of the taxing nature of the work and maybe because of unexamined issues in my own life, that I was having a mental health crisis. I was having an emotional and spiritual crisis. The problem was, is that I was unwilling to acknowledge this and certainly did not recognize it in myself. And so as things got harder and harder and more difficult, my reaction, being the person that I am, was just to work harder and to dig in deeper. And it wasn't until my wife, Sarah, and a, a really good friend persuaded me Uh, that I eventually conceded to go to visit a Christian counselor. Now, I genuinely believed that everything was fine and that I was only going to appease them. And so I showed up on this day with the counselor and I had to fill out an intake form. And I remember on the intake form, there was a question that asked for the name of my physician. Well, I didn't have a physician. I had not been to see the doctor in maybe a decade. And so I just left it blank, no doctor. And then I went in and I sat down and met this nice lady and we began to talk and and I just made it very clear. I told her from the, I told her at the very start, I said, you know, I just need you to know that I don't need to be here (laughs) and that um, there's really, everything's actually really fine. And maybe if you think it's, I should, maybe I should come like every couple months or something like that just to talk through issues or whatever. And she said, I see. (laughs) And then we talked some more and after a while she stopped me and she said, can I ask you a question? Now, it's scary when a counselor asks you that. And uh, I said, of course. And she said, do you know what question I'm going to ask you? And I thought about all the different kinds of questions that a counselor might ask, you know, about my life, about my past, about my history, about my relationship with my father, you know, all of these things. But I said, no, I don't know what question you're going to ask me. And she said, the question I want to ask you is this. Why did you not write down the name of your physician? And I said, what? (laughs) She said, why did you not write down the name of your doctor? I said, what? I don't have a doctor. She said, why don't you have a doctor? I said, I don't know. Why are you asking me this? And then ever so gently she said, because I think that is revealing something dangerous about you and your soul. And then like a surgeon inserting her scalpel into my soul, she proceeded to reveal to me that I was a man who did not know myself, and that my lack of attention and care of my physical body and health was just a manifestation of my lack of attention to what was going on inside of my soul, that I was falling apart, and that I was ignoring the stress, ignoring the anxiety, ignoring the pain and the fear and the depression and that I was a man who was running. And over the last 10 years, I have really been on a journey of coming to know myself better, knowing my own weaknesses and brokenness better, 
And as a result, knowing the grace of Jesus much more deeply that I am a man who every day stands in the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus for me. And all of that, all of that beautiful life came for me through the asking of a very thoughtfully chosen question. I love what president of UVA, James Ryan, says in his wonderful little book called Wait What? He says, questions are like keys. The right question asked at the right time will open a door to something you don't yet know, something you haven't yet realized, or something you haven't even considered about others and about yourself. Don't you love that? Questions are like keys. And those of you who have a really good friend or maybe a therapist or someone in your life who has done this, who knows how to ask the right questions, know that, that when the right question is asked, it can open up something in you that you did not yet perceive or understand about yourself or about others or even about the things that matter most. The series is an examination on the questions of Jesus. You know, we often think of Jesus, he's the God man, right? We think of him as like the answer man. The bumper sticker says Jesus is the answer, which he is. But did you also know that Jesus was a champion question asker? That in the Gospels, it is recorded that he asked more than 300 questions. During my sabbatical, I read through the Gospels and I circled every single one of them. And there are so many questions. And Jesus asks them always at the right time, at the right, the right kind of, he is like, his questions are like a key opening a door. And you can watch it all over the gospels that he begins to open up the door of people's souls so that they understand new things about themselves, about their need for God, and about the upside down nature of his kingdom. And above all, more than anything else, Jesus asks questions because he loves people. And because he wants to know people. And his questions, as we'll see this morning, are an invitation into relationship with him. That Jesus wants to invite conversation with us. And he often does that through his questions. So over the next couple months, we're going to be looking at one different question of Jesus a week. And here's the thing. I believe, and I know that some of you, I know that many of you believe this too. That Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead. He has ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he is now a living presence among us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what that means is that these are not dead questions that we are studying historically in an ancient book, but these questions are alive. They are living questions that the risen and reigning Jesus is asking to you and me even today. And that's what I want you to approach this series is how might Jesus be addressing you? What door in your own soul might the key of his questions be seeking to open? What new things about yourself, what new things and understandings about him and his grace for you and the upside down nature of his kingdom might Jesus be wanting to open up in you? So I just want to invite you, you know, whether, whatever you are in your journey with Jesus, whether you've been walking him for years or whether you don't know whether you believe in him or at all, I want you to take the risk to believe in the coming months that these questions that Jesus is asking, he's actually asking to you. Do you believe that? Let's do that together, okay? That's what we'll do the next few months. So today we're looking at what I think is one of the most interesting questions of Jesus, that he is one of his most favorite questions. He asked it in different forms, in many different ways. This is it. What do you want me to do for you? So let's open our Bibles to Mark 10, where we actually, interestingly enough, find this question twice in the span of 15 verses, two stories right after another. Jesus asked the same question. And we're going to start with verse 46 of chapter 10. Read the second story first. 
hear God's word. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, so he just shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Imagine Bartimaeus in your mind with me right now, will you? He is a beggar. He is a panhandler. Uh, He is what was in the ancient society, the five or 10% of the world that were called expendables. He he had a disability, he could not take care of himself, nor did he have anyone to take care of him. So he was reduced to sitting on the side of the road every day and asking for money. This phrase that he said, have mercy on me, was just a very common phrase that many beggars used that he would have asked 100 times a day to people as they were passing by. It's like that man that you see on the median that you pass on the road, you know, the intersection of, you know, Patterson and Parham or whatever, who's sitting there in his wheelchair and holding that piece of cardboard box, and it says, disabled vet, homeless, will work for food. You know that guy? That's Bartimaeus. He's, he's trapped in the routine of his own victimhood. He has no vision left for his life at all. He can't see anything for himself except to just push out there every single day and ask for change. That's his life. That's all he does every single day. Until this day. Because this day is different because he's out there and he's standing, sitting there on the street, off the side of the road, and he hears this name, Jesus. He's heard this name. He's heard that this person is perhaps the one who is the descendant of the high King David. And so he begins to cry out, just sort of spontaneously from his soul, he begins to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. He begins to shout. Other people tell him to be quiet. Shut up, man. He doesn't have time for you. And so he just responds by shouting even louder, son of David. He's screaming on the top of his lungs, the text suggests. He's screaming, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him. And he stops. Just imagine, you know, this big crowd of people following Jesus. He's on his way to the Jerusalem, and suddenly he stops. And he's looking around. And he sees this beggar over on the side of the road, and he motions that this man would be brought to him. And so the man gets up, and he's brought over to Jesus, and they're standing there together, face to face, nose to nose. The crowd's around them. The crowd goes quiet. Here are these two men in the center of the spotlight. What is going to happen? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, at first blush, this is strange. I mean, seriously, Jesus, isn't it obvious? <laughs> isn't it obvious what he wants you to do for him? Why are you asking him? Don't just, just do it. But I actually think this is one of the most beautiful things about the way that Jesus asks questions. But because by asking this man, not assuming what he needs, nor treating him as a project to be fixed or a problem to be mended. Jesus gives him voice. He, he gives him opportunity to vocalize and to speak 
the, own, the needs of his body and his mind. You know, in his masterful book, Being Mortal, physician Atul Gawande talks about how powerful it is for physicians who are caring for advanced stage cancer patients to actually take the time to ask them and listen to what it is that they want for the last few months of their life rather than just to assume that they know what it is. And this is what Jesus is doing for this man. He, he, he wants him to feel like a person who is valued and loved, not a project to be fixed. What do you want me to do for you? And can you imagine what Bartimaeus is thinking? I mean, he, he has asked so many people for all of his life, for so much, so many things, money and for all the physical needs that he has. And suddenly here is this man, the descendant of the King David, asking him what he wants. What's he going to say? Is he just going to say what he has said every day? Some money, a warm blanket, a meal? But somehow, somehow he perceives that Jesus is actually asking him for what he really wants. And he believes somehow that this man actually has the power to give it to him. And so Bartimaeus, in this amazing act of risky faith, dares to name what is the deepest and most desperate desire of his heart. He puts it all on the table. He takes an enormous risk that Jesus might not give it to him. He names it in front of these hundreds of people. He looks at Jesus and he says, Rabbi, what I want is to see. And you could just see, imagine Jesus' face breaking out into this big smile, beaming with joy, looking at Bartimaeus saying, brother, your sight is mine to give. Receive it. And his eyes are open and his life has changed forever. What do you want me to do for you? Amazing, isn't it, that the Son of God would ask that question. This is a question that people in the service industry ask. How may I help you? It's what the people at the cashier desk at Chick-fil-A ask you, you know, trained so well in their customer service skills. How may I help you? It's what the hotel clerk asks you. It's what the lady in the other end of the Verizon helpline asks you. you know, how may I help you? This is not a question that the Lord of heaven and earth should be, he should be asking how we can help him. And yet Jesus says over and over again, in fact, the verse right before this story, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come to us to join the service industry. If Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, which we believe he is, it means that God, the real God, is not like the gods of the Greek myths who is always trying to use humans to get what they want, to get something for themselves, but that the real God, what drives him into relationship with us is what he can do for us. He wants to know our needs. He wants to know our desires. Jesus is like a father delighting in giving gifts to his children. The father wants to hear our need and he wants to answer. And so behind this question, Jesus is literally asking you, what do you really want? He is asking you, inviting you to get in touch with the desperate places of need in your life, the places where you are struggling, the place, the, even the deep desires of your life. He is asking you to name those things to him and to look to him as the one who can answer. He's inviting you to go deeper than just mere pocket change that you ask him for every day, but to really get in touch with the desperate needs of your life and to look to Jesus 
as the one who can answer those things. You know, I, I apologize that I'm using so many Harry Potter illustrations these days, but I'm reading the books to my kids, and so my source of illustration and inspiration is rather small. Uh, I, I'm a parent, okay? <laughs> um, so there's this great illustration from, from the first book, from the Sorcerer's Stone, where Harry is wandering around uh, Hogwarts, and he encounters a magical mirror. Do you remember the mirror? The mirror of said. And, you know, my 11-year-old says to me, Dad, that's just desire backwards, duh. Now I get it. The mirror of Erised. And so what happens with the mirror of Erised is Harry looks into this mirror, and not only does he see himself in the mirror, but he suddenly sees this whole crowd of people behind him. He comes to realize that what he is seeing is not just himself, but he's seeing his parents, who he has lost and never known. He sees, he sees this whole crowd of people that are his family, those that he has never met. And he is so drawn into this that he returns to it again and again until Dumbledore, the the great headmaster of the school, tells Harry that what happens when you look, anyone looks into the mirror of Erised is they see not only themselves, but they see the deepest and most desperate desire of their hearts. And so that's why Harry, the orphan that he is, when he looks in that mirror, what he sees is not just himself, he sees home. He sees belonging. He sees family. And so I want you to imagine that Jesus is asking you to look into the mirror of Erised. He's asking you to look in that mirror, see what you see, and then name it to him. What do you see? Someone after the service told me that they see when they look in that mirror, they're without a house and they see a home because they long finally for a place of family. Some of you might long for significance or for love. Some of you might long for deep and lasting change or a healed marriage or a restored friendship, a relationship with a child or a healed body or restoration in your mind or even just a longing to connect with God to believe and know that he is real and that he actually loves you. What do you really want? That's what Jesus is asking you. What do you want? And it might be scary to believe that Jesus is actually asking you this. I mean, what if you get it wrong? What if you say the wrong things to him? But I want you to know is that you don't have to worry about that because Jesus is not concerned about whether you name the right things to him. What he's concerned about is you. What he wants is a relationship with you. And naming your honest longings and desires to him is the first step in coming into a more intimate relationship with the Lord. We name our deep desires to Jesus. He invites us to do that. Not because we are guaranteed to get what we ask for, but because it's better to be disappointed in conversation with Jesus than it is to be alone in your thwarted and disappointed desires. So I was talking to a friend last week who shared his story with me that reminded me of this. He was out of work for some time, and he was just disappointed again and again, and finally a job came up that he was really excited about, and that he decided... He was just going to stop praying these generic Christian prayers like, whatever you want, Lord, your will be done. And he decided to be like Bartimaeus, and he was going to go for it. And so he said, Lord, I want this job. Please give me this job. This is what I really want. This is what I need. And as he vocalized those honest desires to Jesus, what he began to realize in prayer with Jesus is that a lot of these deeper feelings of insecurity and anxiety and fear were being uncovered, and he realized that what he wanted was, yes, a job, but what he really wanted was significance, believing that he was able to contribute something worthwhile to the world, that what he really wanted was 
to believe that he could provide for his family, that what he really wanted was a secure future and not to always be afraid about what was around the corner. That's what he really wanted. And he began to name those desires to Jesus. And guess what? He didn't get the job. But in naming those desires to Jesus, the fact that he was already in conversation with the Lord meant that he was able to bring that disappointment to God. And he was able to look increasingly to Jesus for those things that his heart truly desired. And you know, in the end, he did get a job. But that wasn't the point. The point was what happened to him in his life with Jesus through the process. So friends, do you believe that Jesus is looking at you and he is asking, what do you want? He is not a genie ready to grant your dreams. He wants you to get in touch with your need. Your need is like a road that connects to the heart of Jesus. He does not want you to approach him with your moral proficiency, with your strong religious habits and your good moral character. Your connection with Jesus begins with your need. Getting in touch with the deep needs of your soul and the needs of your life, and then looking to Jesus and Jesus alone as the one who can satisfy those deep needs and desires of your soul. That's what faith is. That's why Bartimaeus is commended for his faith, though he did nothing but screen his head off. He's commended for his faith because faith is not some weird spiritual energy that some people have and other people don't. Faith is just simply getting in touch with the deep need of your soul and looking to Jesus as the one who can meet those needs. That's true faith, and everyone can have that kind of faith because everybody deep down is desperate. So that's the first thing we see is that Jesus is really asking us, what do you really want? But there's something else going on in this question that I think Jesus is asking us, and that is also this, what is truly worth wanting? Let's look at the second story, beginning at verse 35. Let's look again in our Bibles. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How's that for an approach to Jesus? Uh, And then listen to what Jesus says. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, oh yes, you will. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So Jesus asked the same question to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And James and John, much like Bartimaeus, dare to name the honest desires of their heart to him. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. They are so cunning. They are like political advisors at the end of a presidential campaign, right? Angling for cabinet appointments in the coming administration. Here's what we want, they said. We know you're going to Jerusalem And we know you're going to topple Rome and take power. And so when you get there, we want to be right next to you. We want to be vice president, speaker of the house. We'll be right there with you, Jesus. That's what we want. And Jesus is so compassionate. He says, you don't know what you're asking. He says, you've completely misunderstood my mission. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, but he's not going there to take power, but to lose it. And he's not going to to thwart his enemies. He's going to give his life for them. He's not going to be mounted up on a throne. He's going to be pinned up on a cross. And these places to his right and left that James and John so desperately want, you know, the next time Mark mentions the place on Jesus' right 
and his left are the criminals crucified next to him. Those are the places that Jesus has already reserved for other people because the way of greatness in the kingdom of Jesus is not the upward mobility to glory, but is the downward path of mobility to crucifixion. Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. And so to these men, these disciples that he loves deeply, he is challenging their desires. He's saying, I look, I know, guys, you want greatness and you want glory, but you don't understand what those things are. Glory is not about applause and acclaim and notoriety and power. If I gave you those things, you wouldn't be happy. They'd kill you. My kind of greatness is, is, a, is an upside-down greatness. So no, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you something way better. I'm going to show you the better way. I am going to give you something that is actually worth wanting. So you see, Jesus' question goes deeper. What is truly worth wanting? Jesus doesn't just want to give you what you want. He loves you too much for that. You know, like your kid asking you for a cobra. Jesus will not give you what will kill you. He wants to redefine what is worth wanting. He wants to give us what is really valuable, what is worth waiting for. Every one of us here have a unconscious vision of the good life. Every one of us, whether you can articulate what that vision or not. If you and I went to coffee together this week and we sat down and we decided that we are going to be brutally honest with each other about what it is that we really want in life and that we were going to commit to not use sentimental religious God talk and not say what we think we should want, but what we actually want in life, I think a lot of us would say some pretty similar answers. That, you know, I want success. I want, you know, relationships of love in which I am cared for and known and loved. I want Instagram-worthy friends and experiences. I want um, my kids to be successful and healthy. I want good health. I want varied forms of leisure. You know, I want, I want financial security, you know, not to be rich or anything, but just enough money that I can do whatever I want. You know, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of us, honestly, I think a lot of us, if we were honest with each other and we actually named what it is that our vision of the good life is, a lot of us would say these things. And these are very similar things to what anybody else in Richmond would say. And that's okay. Jesus sees that about us. He sees that in me. He sees that in you. And he deeply loves us. But coming into relationship with Jesus means that you honestly name those things to him and you eventually let him challenge you deeply. Challenge your vision of the good life. To begin to actually reshape your vision, redefine your longings, to give you a new vision, a new vision of what the good life is and what life is really about. He wants to put a new operating system in us, a new power through the Spirit to begin to reshape our desires, to give us desires for the things that align with his kingdom. But all that begins with honesty, laying everything out before him, both good and bad, both godly and godless. He wants to see it all. Ruth Haley Barton writes this. She says, there are desires within us that work against the life of the Spirit in us. Desires rooted in selfish ambition, pride, lust, fear, self-protection, and many other unexamined motives. These desires lurk within us all. And that is why giving any attention at all to desire feels like opening a Pandora's box. So it may feel scary to you to just be completely honest with God about all of those desires in your heart, even the ones that are driven by lust and fear and pride and self-protection. But the greater risk is to not to name those things to God, because if you don't, those things become 
nefarious within you. They, they begin to wield power within you that can lead you away from the Lord. And so it's much better to name those things. And Ruth Haley Barton goes on to say, as disturbing as it is to be exposed in this way, sometimes it is exactly what we need. For then Jesus can gently strip away that which is false and destructive in our desires and fan into flames those desires that are good and true. For some reason, this really reminds me of Marie Kondo. Do y'all know who Marie Kondo is? She's, she's like this viral Japanese minimalist lifestyle coach. Um, and if you don't know who she is, you can Google her later. She has a Netflix show right now. Basically, what she, she's this, this wonderful person who believes deeply that our lives are over-cluttered and over-filled with things, things that we think we want and need but are actually making us unhappy. So what she does is she goes into people's homes and she tells you to dump out all your stuff on the floor. Like literally you take all your clothes and put it on a big pile on the floor and then you go through each piece of clothing one by one and you pick a, piece of, you pick a shirt up and you decide, does this piece of clothing bring me joy or does it not? And if it does, you keep it and if it does not, you throw it away. And you watch the show and, and people's lives are being transformed. They're crying, they're, you know, they feel liberated. We're doing this in, in, the, in our, the Widmer household and I will tell you, there's a lot that I don't buy about her system, but I'm telling you, my sock drawer has never brought me so much happiness. Um, it is beautiful and tidy and color-coordinated. I am loving this. Anyway, why am I saying this? Here's why I'm saying this. I want you to imagine this, that Jesus wants to Marie Kondo your desires, right? I want you to imagine, like, right, just do, do this. You're, you're right in front of him. And, and instead of pouring out your clothes, he wants you to pour out through your soul everything in you that you want, everything that you desire, and just honestly name it in front of him. You know, name the, the good, noble things, you know, I want to know more of you and your kingdom. Name, name the, the not-so-noble things, you know, that I just want a 10% raise and better window treatments and to lose 15 pounds or, you know, whatever. Just name those things to him. Name them honestly, and then let Jesus do the work of taking up each one, one by one, and saying, this is good, this, this sparks joy in my kingdom. I don't want to fan this thing into flame, or let him pick up something and say, this needs to be refined, this needs to be remade, or this needs to be extinguished, because it does not align with the will and purposes of my kingdom. And this takes losing control. It takes coming to Jesus and laying down your life, laying down your desires, and be willing to let the self be crucified so that the life of Jesus begins to emerge in you. And this is what often happens in our life with Jesus. You know, we often begin just with simple requests, and that's okay. It's okay to, if you're a child here today, it's okay to just begin by asking Jesus for things that you need. That's where he wants you to begin to see the need in your life and to see him as the one who can help you. But at some point you move into a real relationship where you realize that it's not enough just to get stuff from someone, but to actually value them for the person themselves. And that you begin to realize that you are in this life with God, not just to get stuff from God, but because you love him and you want to know more of him and you want to dwell with him. But there's a final stage that really we see here in this question that is the state of relinquishment, where you begin to say to Jesus, not my will, but yours be done, like Jesus says in the garden, 
where you begin to actually name your honest desires before him and let him begin to kill and refine and extinguish those things in your soul that are misaligned with his will for your life and to refine and give you new desires that are aligned with his kingdom. And my prayer for our church is that in the coming months that we would go deeper into relationship with Jesus, that we would get in touch with our deep need, that we'd be willing to name those needs honestly to Jesus and look to him as the one who meets them, but ultimately that we would be a community that aims for total relinquishment, that we would be those who are crucified, who go the way of the cross, and who allow Jesus to put to death those things in us that are unpleasing to him, and that the life of the Spirit would begin to grow. Because if Jesus is going to use us for the renewal of our city and our world, if Jesus is going to advance his kingdom among us, then he must become greater and we must become less. So let's pray that he does that with us in the coming months. Would you pray with me? want to invite you for a moment to imagine yourself in Bartimaeus's shoes sitting on the side of the road and Jesus has stopped he's looking at you he's only looking at you and he's looking in your eyes and he is saying what do you want me to do for you what do you say just begin there what is the deep cry the deep need of your life the deep need of your heart Can you take the risk to name it to Jesus and to believe that he can answer you?